Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. People are putting about 40 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year now. With what's proposed at the Paris conference... It's just a start, but these first steps are, are really not going to be sufficient to avoid a pretty big car crash sometime in mid-century. What if we had a show about solutions? Not the same old left versus right. I am right, I'm right. and you are wrong. You're wrong. Boring. <laughs> yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? So before we get started, when you go to iTunes, it's really great if you can download the show. A lot of the metrics they use to measure the success of podcasts have to do with downloads. And it's great for you because you can listen to it when you're in the car or on the exercise bike. So you don't have to listen to commercials with this show. You don't have to give us money, but please download it. And that's the end of our uh, imitation of an NPR funding drive. <laughs> So, Jim, the demand for energy around the world continues to grow, and along with it, so does the amount of carbon dioxide that's being pumped into the Earth's atmosphere. A few weeks ago, we interviewed the Environmental Defense Fund's Gernot Wagner, who made the case for urgent action to bring down CO2 emissions. But what if that doesn't happen? What if all the treaties and negotiations over climate change don't succeed in reducing emissions? Right. So today, we're going to talk about some exciting research that might give us another tool to fight climate change. If it pans out, this could be a way to take CO2 literally out of the atmosphere, out of the ocean water, and give us another tool to fight this buildup of CO2 in the atmosphere. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer, Miranda Schaefer, joining us here in the studio. So our guest today is geologist Peter Kellerman. Peter is the Arthur D. Stork Professor of Geochemistry at Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. He's also the chair of Columbia's Earth and Environmental Studies Department. And just last year, Peter, you were inducted into the National Academy of Science. Which is a pretty big deal. So welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. So you teach a course at Columbia. It's very popular about Earth's resources and also the threat of climate change from CO2. Give us a big picture. So how much are we putting out? What's the historical record on all of this since the Industrial Revolution? And, and, um, and where is it going? People are putting about 40 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year now. And uh, that is, that's been increasing by 2 or 3%. Uh, throughout the previous century and, and until now, with no real sign of change. So that, that's so, 40 tons. Is that a big deal? 
40 billion tons. 40 billion tons. 40 billion tons is a pretty big deal. So just for example, the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere as a result will double from today's value of 400 ppm. And that's parts per million. Yes. Yeah. To 800 ppm in a time scale of you know, less than the end of this century. And we know that no matter how, where people stand on the, the supposed debate about climate change, there's really no debate that CO2 has some impact on trapping heat. So if you double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, you know something's going to happen. The odds of it being good yeah, yeah, and are pretty much zero. Regardless of whether you're a climate denier or not, we are pumping more CO2 into the Earth's atmosphere. Right, and it's increasing 2 or 3% a year. The doubling time for that is between 25 and 35 years just of our emissions. We can take the safe limit that some of my colleagues would choose and double it, and we're still going to cross that sometime in this century. Okay, so we have the Paris conference coming up. There's a big effort to try and do something to reduce our carbon emissions. Can we fix it with with treaties? It's just a start. It's nothing even close to reducing the, the rate of growth of emissions, let alone having emissions decline. It does establish that there's a whole bunch of nations that are going to go on record as seeing this as a problem and trying to solve it. But these first steps are, are really not going to be sufficient to avoid a pretty big car crash sometime in mid-century. So most of what we hear about focuses on reducing emissions. But there's another angle, which you've been involved in. It's known as carbon sequestration. We would call it carbon storage rather than sequestration. Uh, sequestration uh, sounds like something that happens in a funeral home. But uh, <laughs> we, we would talk about carbon dioxide capture and storage. So if we were to overshoot safe limits of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, then we would have to achieve something that people call negative emissions to actually reduce the concentration in the atmosphere. Obviously, that's a lot more difficult in some ways than avoiding emissions or capturing CO2 from a smokestack where CO2 might be 10%. So this carbon capture and storage, what does it involve? Just break it down. Well, let's take carbon dioxide removal from air. So you somehow take CO2 out of the air. There's various big engineered solutions. But let's say we get that carbon dioxide. Then you've got to put it somewhere. There's a lot of technical challenges to that. On the other hand, it is something we know how to do. But it's just not really easy to bring that to scale. Mm -hmm. And once you do, you have these storage reservoirs that you're going to have to monitor for centuries where the fluid can obviously move around. It can leak out. It can leak out fast, which is dangerous. More likely, it can leak out slowly. So, exactly how do we So we could go it? all this effort of pumping all this CO2 down there and then you know, find out 100 years later it's it, all it's, leaking out yeah, again. Leaking, yeah. It could happen. So, so what we're working on is a slightly different thing. It's been around for... 20 years, but is to react carbon dioxide with various naturally abundant rock materials and make solid carbonate minerals. Right, so right. So, about so, half so, of them so you by turn weight. it into a solid. Turn, yeah. yeah. And about yeah. half of that solid by weight is CO2. So it's very dense, doesn't take up a lot of space. It's inert, it's stable, it's non-toxic. You don't have to monitor it because it's never going to go anywhere. So it might be more expensive initially than injecting CO2 into pore space, but in the end, it's a much more permanent solution. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So now you didn't start out researching carbon capture and storage. You were doing some research in Oman. Right. So we've been working for 20 years in the Sultanate of Oman and um, there's a big chunk of oceanic crust and upper mantle there. Was, so, so this is part of what would normally be way down, buried right. in the earth, um, yep. and it's up close to the surface. So that stuff, it doesn't happen everywhere, but every now and then, oceanic crust and upper mantle gets thrust onto the continents and is exposed. And the biggest chunk of that in the whole world is in Oman. You can basically go down these beautiful canyons in Oman and walk down 20 kilometers into the interior of the earth. Wow. So we were there to study the high temperature history of these submarine volcanoes that form the seafloor. And I was very aware of these carbonate veins around, and I didn't like them because they obliterated the high temperature history of the rocks that we were there to study. So so wherever there was a crack in the natural rock, there was this new rock, this white carbonate that was filling up the cracks that you needed to do for research. Exactly. And that all came from CO2 in the air. It did. So let me just continue the story. I moved from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution to Columbia University in 2004, and I heard people talking about using minerals from the Earth's deep interior to react with CO2 and make these solid carbonates. And I had seen that, and I knew what it was, that these people said, oh, we thought about that, but it's too slow. And I'm kind of a contrary individual. And I knew that it actually wasn't very slow. So you'll, you'll fit right in. <laughs> I was going to say, no wonder Jim likes you. <laughs> so, you know, you can go and there are these alkaline springs where this water that's heavily reacted with these former rocks from the Earth's interior, and it comes out pH 12. It's like soap. And uh, it doesn't actually have any carbon left in it. It's dumped all that in the subsurface, but it reacts on the surface to take up CO2 from the air. And um, I knew that if you throw a pebble into one of these pools, it knocks down this little scum of calcium carbonate on the surface. It falls down to the bottom of the pool. If you come back the next day, the scum has grown back. So, so for a geologist... Overnight, literally overnight. Yeah, for a geologist, something that happens in a day, that's like supersonic. <laughs> so I was really, you know, when I heard people say this is slow, I thought, well, that can't really be. And we uh, started collecting samples from these cracks with carbonate veins that Jim's talked about. And we think, Oman, these rocks from the Earth's interior are sucking down about 100,000 tons of CO2 per year. Naturally, without any intervention. But then you took the next step. You thought, okay, if this is happening naturally... Could we Right. So there's it? experimental work that shows that if you have slightly higher temperatures or higher partial pressures of CO2, you can accelerate that process by a factor of more than a million. So, so what would you do? Would you bring the CO2 to Oman or take the rocks, bring them to different sites? That's a great question. And what the engineers who were thinking about mineral carbonation in the past were thinking about so-called ex situ. So they were going to quarry the rock transport it halfway around the world to some place where there's a power plant, grind it up to 10 micron size, build a reactor, raise it to high temperature and pressure, and put that powder in there with CO2 that they somehow captured from smokestack gas. And obviously, you can just tell from all those steps, that's pretty expensive. And basically, the last estimate I saw basically doubles the cost of the power plant. So that's why it hasn't come on real quick. 
what we're proposing or thinking about doing is really emulating the natural system and bringing the CO2 to the rocks rather than taking the rocks to the CO2. And you get a lot for free there. Uh, for example, you don't have to maintain high temperature and pressure. The Earth does that for you. And basically, you're doing everything you can to take advantage of this spontaneous natural reaction and reduce the amount of energy you have to put in. So you need to drill a hole, like an oil well or a natural gas well. You need to drill down in there. Yeah, and, you'd probably uh, frack. Um, you uh, would use uh, fairly high-pressured water to either open up existing fractures or create some new ones. So sketch me out sort of the science fiction view. So we go to Oman, and we see a large area where there's something that looks like oil wells. The initial drilling has happened to get the water down there, but it pretty much circulates by itself. You don't need a bunch of pumps and stuff? So ideally, the water will circulate through a fracture system by itself, and of course, that's what we see in the natural system. So cold water, which is dense, goes down. It heats up in the subsurface because the Earth's interior is hotter, and then it becomes less dense and rises, and that's called thermal convection. So the systems that we see in Oman, the systems that we see on the seafloor around submarine volcanoes, which also do the same thing, they don't require any pumping. Obviously, nobody's doing anything. That's the ideal end member because you don't have any energy input. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And that would uh, achieve direct capture of CO2 from that water, which you then return to the sea surface, take right. CO2 out of the air. Our show is about solutions, and this is a solution you're proposing. How feasible is it? Are we in the very early stages of talking about this, or is this something that you really see could maybe pan out in 20 or 30 years? The big technical challenge is this, that as you have water going down and depositing new minerals in cracks, let's say, uh, that water could fill up all the pore space and clog up so there's no longer any fluid flow. It could armor all the remaining minerals that haven't reacted yet, so that becomes a big barrier to further reaction, and so everything could grind to a halt. But we do see that the natural system, in some cases, every single magnesium and calcium atom in the rock has found a CO2 and made friends with it. So this water is going down with all the CO2 in solution. And as that CO2 turns into rock, essentially, it gets a little bit bigger. You're adding adding mass. You're adding mass to the solid. Right. And the le- the the minerals that are forming are less dense right. than the ones that you started. So with. then that's cracking the host rock, expands and, and making new rock. new cracks and new rock available for the next wave of of CO two right. to bond to. So there is this positive feedback process where you can get into it, and once you get there, a hundred percent of the rock will react. And we need to understand very very well where that positive feedback system is. And we're doing laboratory work where we're breaking rocks with various kinds of carbonation and hydration reactions. It's a lot of fun. Um, And we're also studying the natural system in Oman more and more from the perspective of trying to capture the natural cracking process in action, that's I would say. What would you do with the end product? Nothing. But I mean, (laughs) you would just fully accumulate more and more of these things at store? But it's, it's, it's underground. I mean, basically, you're making cracks in the deep rock that fill up with this stuff and they can stay there forever. Uh, we would propose that the best place to do this, at least to start, is in the shallow subsea floor. So where you're not drilling in the ocean, that's very expensive. But you drill from the shoreline diagonally underneath the seafloor, and then some of this deformation of the seafloor is going to be not that important. Whereas in Oman, you don't want to screw up somebody's water supply. How does this compare to nuclear power? So nuclear waste, high-level nuclear waste, spent fuel rods remain more radioactive than we're willing to expose uranium miners to for a million years. 
So they're really, really toxic for a really long time. And in fact, it's kind of science fiction to imagine how you isolate material like that for a million years. All right. This stuff, magnesium carbonate, is totally non-toxic. It's totally inert. You can eat it if you want to, but it's not <laughs> bad for you. So, so it's just not a not a good but, comparison. But you've always been very clear, A, that this is highly experimental at this stage. We really there's a long way to go before we know if it's if it's feasible. But B, there's just one of a of a whole toolbox of tools we might want to use to to reduce um climate change. But how big could it be? How much CO two could we get out of if we did it on a large scale? This problem is way too big to deal with with one specific technology. You want to have ten or 50 things going forward in parallel. So we should really have a really wide palette of experimentation to try and see how to best deal with this. Uh, there's this great paper by Steve Pakala and Rob Sokolow at Princeton on uh, just exa- addressing that point and showing how no individual solution can take care of all the CO2 emissions. But if you divide that by 10, you start to see things that are reasonable. So the one-tenth, to do one-tenth of human CO2 emissions by the method that we're proposing might take the same number of boreholes as there are oil and gas wells in the U.S. today. So that seems like a huge number, I'm sure, to anybody who's listening to this. But, you know, keep in mind that the oil and gas industry moves 4 billion tons of fluid on the surface of the earth every year. So anything that takes a large amount of CO2 and does something with it is going to look a little bit like the infrastructure for oil and gas. And and if we had a carbon trading market, that could be part of where the finance for this comes from. Absolutely. But let's talk about why there's no carbon trading market. <laughs> All right. So I like well, to there, tell this some in story, and we'll see if you want to edit it out. I like to tell this story about London. London became the world's largest city in 1821, and they had no sewers. Okay? So they had cesspools, or if you were poor, you just threw your poop out to the street. And in 1856, I think it was, it didn't rain. And there was this appalling stench in the summer. It was called the Great Stink. The royal court moved out. Parliament debated moving out of London. Instead, they passed legislation. Over the next 10 years, they dug up all the big streets in the world's largest city and put in a central sewer system. It cost 2% of GDP, and maintaining those sewers is still costing them about 1% of GDP a year. When people think that putting CO2 in the air is like throwing poop in the street, you know, carbon capture and storage, other carbon mitigation things cost you around 2 3% of GDP. So as soon as we think that putting CO2 in the air is poop in the street, no problem. Let me ask you one other question, because I think it's fascinating what you've described. And, and clearly, we're just scratching the surface, literally. So what are some places people can go to find out more about what you're doing and about this whole field of carbon capture and storage? Well, so for the non-technical reader, I, if you just Google carbon capture and storage, you'll find quite a lot. If you looked up my name, even if you misspelled it in Google, you'll find various press reports on what we're doing. Um, a little bit more technical, there's a very good report from the National Research Council that came out, I think, in February of this year. That's I know I have some quibbles with it, but it's quite complete. Uh, so that's carbon dioxide removal from air. And more generally, carbon capture and storage, there's an IPCC report that's a little dated now, but 2005 that you can download as a big PDF that has a nice review of all these different options. This is something that, as you say, 
it's one of a whole range of things we should look at. But how exciting to think that there might be something that doesn't just look at the production end, but also addresses undoing some of the damage that may have already been done. I would really advise listeners not to go there. Not so, to go where? It might be better to get on with the energy transition, replace all the fossil fuel electrical generation with photovoltaic. Solar. So, yeah. And wind, you know, now than to try and draw down CO2 50 years from now. So that's what I work on, but I really recommend that you try and go somewhere else. So you're advocating for not doing this. <laughs> so so not this, here we are. <laughs> it's how do we fix it? And we have, a, we have a really cool solution that if we do everything else right, hopefully we'll never the need. The inventor hopes you will never use. <laughs> Thanks well, a lot. Uh, thank you so much, Peter Kellerman. I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. And this is How Do We Fix It? Go for it. Uh, so I might be a little biased. Having an old climbing buddy of mine, I mean, we've, we've hung out on ledges in Yosemite Valley and stuff like that. <laughs> but I just find this idea really intriguing, and I find Peter's humility about it intriguing, too. I mean, that's a real scientist talking there, that here is a concept. It's very promising, but it's way too soon to make any promises about how it might work. But I loved his story about if we treated CO2 in the air the way that we finally realized that poop in the street was just unacceptable, the London example, what could happen? We really could be prepared to spend a great deal of money. Right, yeah. And what's so interesting about this concept, and I hope it came through, is... It would use a lot of technology that already exists. All this oil drilling, all this fracking technology, that's what you used to get it started. But once you got the flow of water going, it would actually kind of run itself. You know, you wouldn't need a lot of pumps and everything. And we didn't get to this question, but Oman has a lot of this particular type of rock, but there's outcrops of this sort of rock all over the world. So there's other places you could do it. And if it could be created synthetically, you also have that option as well. If there was a cap-and-trade market for carbon, then that might be the trigger for doing something sure, like this. Sure, anything that makes it cost-effective for businesses. And I liked his, Peter's point about photovoltaics. I mean, you know, this is the market helping solve the problem. It wasn't because the government said, you must stop burning coal or you must stop burning oil. They said, let's incentivize the idea of people putting solar panels on their buildings. And, and then the businesses stepped up to harvest some of those incentives. But the fact is, it was businesses solving the problem. And as a result, we've seen this decrease in the price of that. That's just one technology. And when you say just in this century, just in 15 years, that price has dropped by a factor of 10. And there may be regional solutions, too. In Texas, just in the past few weeks, uh, utilities are offering free electricity for people if they use it after 9 p.m. Right, right. And this is because of wind power. And it makes total sense. You know, surge pricing. When Uber does it, people freak out. But it's but it's actually a brilliant idea. You charge people more for something when it's scarce and less when it's available to the point of even giving it away for free if you have to. But my point is that, that once we incentivize the market to start pursuing these things, we'll be surprised how many good options come up. And maybe they'll be cheaper than we think. Two thoughts. Peter Kellerman was the first research scientist that we've had on our show. This show was more scientific in its orientation than usual. I'd love to hear from listeners. Yeah. I'd really like to hear whether you want to have more kinds of shows like this. Should we take some of our shows in a more scientific direction? Right. So it's less a policy discussion and more a discussion about the cutting edge of a certain kind of research. If you want to get in touch with us, go to our website, which is www 
that's kind of old fashioned. No, yeah, you don't no, have no, to no, say that just, anymore, do you? No, just <laughs> how do we fix it? Dot me, right? Okay. If, if you want to respond, just go to our website, howdowefixit.me. That is so much smoother than the way or I did it. Or what if they tweet us? Yeah. yeah. Tweet us at Fix It Show. And, you know, we actually even use this old-fashioned technology of email. Anyway, we're easy to get a hold of. We love your thoughts, and uh, thanks for listening. And one other plug. This past week, Jim had an article in the New York Times, an op-ed, about the importance of Mythbusters, the show on cable TV, and what it's done to our sense of discovery and science and just making it much more accessible to new generations. Great article, Jim. And I hope we get the Mythbusters folks in here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my point was basically that, you know, we've seen this resurgence of kind of nerd culture, people loving science, kids building their own robots and stuff. I think the Mythbusters show was not the only thing that caused that, but had a big impact on that. So, yeah, we'll be we'll be getting those guys in the studio in the next few months. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer, Miranda Schaefer, and our audio engineer, Denise Barbarita, here at the beautiful Mono Lisa studio in uptown Manhattan. Did I say it right? Yes. <laughs> Good. The show is produced by Davies Content. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. We make digital audio for nonprofits and companies. Thanks for listening.